Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is the 20th of the 12th, which is a small number of sleeps away from Christmas. Michael, how have you been? I am very well, Gary, thank you. And getting, as you say, more excited by the, the decline, inexorable, inevitable decline, the number of sleeps towards Christmas and death. You're really taking a page out of my book. I like it. Yeah. You know, I think if you lean into it, Gary, that's the secret, isn't it? Lean into it. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the lessons I learned from tobogganing is if you lean into it, you'll just go downhill faster. (laughs) That's a lesson for life. That's a lesson for life right there, Michael. So, new opinion poll came out. We're going to talk about that. Then I want to go on to a brief chat about uh, CETA, the trade deal with Canada. Partially the deal itself partially the investor dispute uh, settlements yes. that are into it, and then partially just the problem that the Green Party has with it. But let's, uh, I suppose let's start off with the opinion poll. We'll just go straight through that. So this is a behaviours and attitudes poll, Michael, is it? B&A? I believe so. So B&A has been a very kind poll to uh, Fianna Fáil, traditionally. They've been... I don't, they've kind of been in the high teens where some of the other polls you're looking at 9 to 13%. So just keep that in mind. So the movement is, since the last poll is this Sinn Fein 32 plus 2, Finnegale 27 minus 4, Finnefall 22 plus 3, Labour 5 plus 1, Greens 3 minus 2. Solidarity, People for Profit, 2, no change. Social Democrats, 1, minus 1. Ain 2, 0, minus 1. And Independence and others, 7, plus 2. So, on one hand, it's a good poll from Fianna Fáil, because they were seeing polls where everyone else in the government was going up, and they were going down. And now everyone else is going down, and they're going up. It's it's a, it's tricky, though, isn't it, when you've won poll... Uh, having them up and on 22 and another poll is having them on around 9 and going down. It's hard to know where to place one's trust. Yeah, I'm I'm not really sure about this poll, actually. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, but as we all know, you know, it doesn't have to. No. You know, one of the temptations with polls is to look at a poll and say, oh, God, I, I'm so sick of people saying, oh, it's an outlier, you know. Every poll that people, it was an outlier. It's a poll. It's a snapshot. It probably, well, let's say not probably. It definitely means nothing at all of any importance because we are, it is, I would say, the feeling in the the general public, a very long way, at least in an Irish context, from a general election. And opinion polls taken months or years away from general elections really don't tell you a whole lot. Nobody's really thinking about what they feel. But, listen, it's nice for Fianna Fáil that they're up three. It'll be a better Christmas for them. Sinn Féin up two, not much of a difference. Fianna Gael, they probably won't like the fact that that means they flipped with Sinn Féin as being the largest party, the most popular party in the country. But still, you know what, they're not in government. Uh, Leo's not teaching, but they're still on 27. They're still five points ahead of Fianna Fáil. And it'll be interesting, I haven't seen yet, and we probably won't see for a little while, the, the, the local breakdown. Now, the local breakdown, Gary, am I right in saying that because you're dealing with increasingly small sample sizes as you break these down, become less and less reliable? Quite quickly, yes. But it would be interesting to see how they break down, say, in Dublin, is Fianna Fáil making any advance in Dublin, or is Fianna, is Fianna Gael still 
really dominating them in Dublin. I mean, it's 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 also important to point out here, although I don't, I don't imagine this is news to our listeners, because what kind of person would listen to this podcast and not know this, Michael? The These are national percentages, but not all parties are distributed across the entire country. Some parties, like, let's say, Solidarity, People for Profit, the Green Party, to an extent, the Social Democrats, and Into. They are not everywhere. Their national percentages don't mean that much to them. True. Because their votes are concentrated in particular areas and usually in particular candidates. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people for profit gets more people elected than it should at 2% because they're not everywhere. Mm -hmm. Now, it is important to get 2% nationally because that's how you get uh, access to one of the central funding for political party, although not the only funding that you can get. There's things like leaders' allowance and, and the like. But you want to get at least 2% nationally. So you'll run people all over the place mm-hmm. to get the 2%. But you know you're only going to get elected in a couple of those pretty much predetermined constituencies. The Greens, I'm not sure how much they fall into that. They have certain candidates who are very strong and, and could get elected on that. But at the same time, they are much more of a national party than you know, the like of the Social Democrats. Like you take the Labour Party. Not that long ago, the Labour Party was a genuinely national party. I mean, the Labour Party was a party with over 30, I mean, was it over 30 days at its high point? I mean, with, under the, you know, back in the days of Gilmore, the Taoiseach, and then... Before that, in the early nineties, you had a lot of you had a lot of TDs that under the, when they came in with the spring tide. Now, it has recent years have not been kind to the Labour Party. They are a little bit devolving what they were once upon a time, which was a party which is spread a bit around the country, but with strong local uh, strong local TDs. So places like Wexford. Probably their safest seat, Brendan Howland's seat. Bre- Wexford Town, just about, is always going to return a Wexford, a, a Labour a Labour candidate. Well, not up to now. And I'd say it will do for the future. Uh, you, the Kerry vote, it's, pretty, it's gone. There's Cork. Sherlock is in that constituency of death, isn't he? I mean, Labour is a bit of a, a hard one to figure out because on a national level, on a policy level, a lot of what they're doing seems to be the right thing to do but they're just not seeing the upward movement that you would expect. So I I don't know, maybe there are issues on the constituency level. Maybe people just don't like them. It's also, they're fighting in a very crowded space. That sort of centre-left-left space is, there's a hell of a lot of competition there. They're being competed, say, on on the social stuff, on the, the left wing of Fine Gael. Fine Gael has not been a, a paragon of right wing sort of freedmanite free market policies at all and has tended to pursue a certain more social profile than anything else. Fianna Fáil is try, is fighting for that vote. I don't know how successfully. Well, I know how successfully. I, not, I, I would argue not very successfully. The Social Democrats are really Labour redux. The Greens, again, as a kind of constituency that Labour would have considered to be very much their own centre-left, environmentalist, professional, middle classes, media types, senior civil servants, NGOs. Um, 
it's a busy, it's a very crowded marketplace there in the centre, centre, the centre left, left in, in Irish politics. And yet everyone wants to go there. It's the new hot destination. It is the new hot destination. It is whatever the new hot destination is. It, Mauritius or Maldives or Tahiti or Indonesia. Actually, I think Indonesia is actually the new hot destination. But weirdly enough, I mean Sinn Féin, the party which is most succeeding at picking up those left wing voters. I mean, when you listen to their uh, some of their TDs talk, particularly those in the more modern kind of Fintan Warfield space, very progressive, very uh, socially welcoming, should we say. Not all of their TDs are like that. Many of them are very much not like that. But their voters are very much not like that. In fact, one could argue that the reason that they've been so successful is that they actually aren't in the same space. Or voters don't perceive them to be in the same space as all of these other left-wing parties. They're a little bit higher on the authoritarian trend. Well, we've talked about this before, and it is still, to me, a little bit mystifying that nobody seems to have copped on that the voters, Sinn Féin voters, are not necessarily in the same place as Sinn Féin is. You know what? I mean, this is hardly what you know, the discovery of boy, of hot water. In, in, I mean, it's a, it, 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 you would have thought for all the clever political analysts out there, this is bloody obvious. If you would look at the what we has been called the great realignment of politics in the West, it's happened supposedly in Trump in the States, it's happened in Eastern Europe, in Poland, Hungary, Czech, places like that. It's happened in, in, in the UK with Brexit and with the the Red Tories. What we've seen is socially conservative but economically more left-wing nationalist parties gaining power. Now, Gary, if I was to say to you, could you imagine in Ireland a party which was socially quite conservative, strong on nationalism, sovereignty, historical va- traditions and values, but centre-left in economic policies, more interventionist and slightly populist in its approach. Does that ring any bells? Sort of sounds very, very like what Fianna Fáil used to uh, rule the country like kings for near a hundred years. You know, again, does it not strike one as odd that when the Great Realignment is happening, and the Great Realignment presumably is happening here as much as it's happening anywhere else, the party that was perfectly designed to open its arms and receive those voters if... No, okay. It was wandering around like a duck that had been hit on the head after the, gra- the crash. That's normal. They were never going to win any, the, the... Well, not they weren't going to win the following election. They were never going to be anything but hockeyed after the Troika came in, which was the, the pivotal moment. It wasn't the crash itself. Even after the crash, they were still up in the high 20s. It was The, tro- the Troika comes in, the IMF and the, and the Europeans come in. And that's all handled very badly, and they get hammered. But they still maintain around 18% of the vote. So probably still representing the biggest core vote, because if you weren't voting, if you were voting Vina Fáil on that day, you were the kind of person that was just voting Vina Fáil, didn't matter what. But they lost confidence in themselves, and instead of paying attention to what was going around, actually going on, they they allowed Michal Martin to lead them like the Pied Piper of Hamlin down the progressive highways and byways of leafy suburban Dublin. And they have got lost, I would say, Gary. And very soon he's going to lead them into the sea in Dorky, and I hope they can swim. I, you know, one of those bits of Irish political facts, information that I love, I love, is that Michal Martin 
has led the party to be less popular than it was during the Troika. Yeah. <laughs> you have to say that's an achievement. As a glorious return. Yeah. That is And an said by people who legitimately believe it. Yeah. And you sort of, when they say it, you do sort of go, do you touch upon reality occasionally? Briefly? Do you winter there, perhaps? It'll be an interesting question to see over the next months and years how successfully Sinn Féin can manage the internal contradictions or tensions within the party and its voter base, between the traditional historical sort of green Sinn Féin and the new red Sinn Féin. Well, they've been, they've been very much helped by that, by the fact that everyone has united to keep them out of government. They have. And also, nobody has, nobody has come forward with an alternative narrative on those issues that might cause tension. So the party itself is progressive, if we use that word, on all the, the usual suspects of the social policy issues. We have reason to believe that the voters who vote in faith are not themselves that, not as progressive, shall we say, as the party is. The party is to the left. We have reason to believe that the voters, or at least many of the voters, are not as left-wing as the party. You know, my favourite stat from the exit polls in the last election was the party whose voters were most in favour of tax cuts over an increase in spending should there should be extra money were Sinn Féin voters, not Fine Gael voters or Fianna Fáil voters. I mean, yeah, I, I haven't seen the stats from the 2020 election, but we know from the research that was done in 2016 on voter preference that Sinn Féin voters have the largest variance uh, between what they believe and what the party they vote for actually uh, says it believes. Well, in the in the breakdown on the on the, you know the, the the series of questions that they ask on an exit polls, one of the questions was in the in, after the twenty twenty was you know, should there if, if there were to be extra money available to do something, would you prefer that money to be spent on greater or better public services or on a tax cut? Now you'd expect a party which is definitely left that the voters would say, oh, public services, but no. Um, 45% of them, something, something like that, which is the highest number of any political party, said they would prefer to be on, uh, on a tax cut. And I think that was really interesting. And, indic- and for anybody who was looking from the outside, that's that's the kind of stat that would make me go, really? Mm, now that's interesting. So Sinn Féin has a, is going to have a challenge there because it's going to have to manage those tensions. It's done it pretty well so far. I suppose, as I, I, I think in large part, yes, first of all, they've been kept out of power, which has made them coalesce a bit, keep them cohering, but also because nobody else is, is offering these voters an alternative vision that they could say, yeah, actually, yes, that, that thing there, that's more like what I like. But I mean, the, the thing about politics is that politics very clearly shows that people don't have perfect information. Most of the time, it's not what a party is actually like. It's the image which that party puts forward. And it's a lot easier to maintain a cohesive image when you don't actually have to make decisions. But when you start having to make decisions and there's actual output and there are things that are now there because of those decisions, that's when people can start to go, hold on a second. Why did you do that? How did that happen? I thought we didn't like that. Why is it there now? And by keeping them out of power, it becomes very easy to say, you know, we'd fix all of these things. So, you know, 
becomes very easy to say we would build an infinite amount of houses and everyone would be able to afford houses and it would be perfect because they can't do it. They can, and they do, stop as many houses as possible in various councils, although not all councils and not all Sinn Féin councillors, and it is not restricted to Sinn Féin. It's uh, it's not even restricted to the left-wing parties. Depending on the council, you have a pretty even shot of having your uh, development shot down by any party, really. Well, we saw that we saw Philip Fall on block voting against the Oscar Trainer development in Dublin there recently. There were Finnegale TDs who threatened to, uh, shall we say, uh, throw the party's whip right back in its face over housing developments in their constituencies when they were told that they could not uh, stop them or could not try and stop them. Now, but Gary, you have to make a distinction. We're not talking about building in Swords. We're talking about building in Still Oregon. Dorky. I mean, you know, come on. We're talking about building anywhere because building is terribly unpopular everywhere. People have property prices, you know, they legitimately are concerned about. I mean, building the building issue is a wonderful example of the power of small, self interested groups. Small, well organized groups that can organize themselves and create enough pressure to get what they want, even though it's actively against the interests of the majority of the of, of people, or, or if not the majority, certainly a much larger groups of people whose interests are not being sufficiently represented. Yeah, the way to convince Irish politicians to do things is not to make a moral or political argument. It is to create a situation in which their interest, which is getting re-elected, is closely aligned with your interest. I don't imagine that that's much different to elective politics across the globe. The only difference that you see, it depends. Some countries' politicians are far more ideological than others. So, from my discussions with American politicians, American politicians believe things. You might think those things are crazy, but they believe them, and they believe them near totally. Yeah. And that, to an extent, serves as a safeguard against things like this, because you run into a lot more people who are willing to just go, well, yes, you can hurt me. And you can hurt my chance at re-election. But I'm still going to do this because it's the thing I think should be done. But on the other hand, you then have to deal with the negatives of having uh, a legislator comprised nearly entirely of people who hold very strong views. I'd also say that an element of the American thing is that you've got a larger number of voters who also have very strong views. Now, for them, they may be single-issue voters, that, and those single-issues spread along the way and actually end up creating a cohort of, of a large number of voters. So you may have a, a proportion of the voters, depending on what part of the states you're in, for whom gun rights are very important. And then beside them, you might have people for whom abortion is a very big issue. And then you might have people for whom low taxation is a very big issue or migration is a very big issue. And if you get enough of them corralled into 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 a space, then that can be enough to create a majority. And a majority which is pretty solid in its own way because they all believe very strongly in those individual things. And the, and the opposition party isn't going to ever be able to satisfy them on that. The other thing is, and we've talked about this before, is that the lobby groups in, in the United States, particularly on the right, far more so than the Conservatives here, have been successful in, in, in making the politicians that they do deals with understand that if they, if, they don't, if they don't play the game, if they don't produce the goods, they can make it cost 
there will be a political cost. I would say in Ireland, groups on the right that have supported individual politicians or even parties have never been, maybe there's been a lack of will or a lack of capacity to organise or a lack of understanding, but they have never made it so that the, the people that are going to, shall we say, betray them to use perhaps overly dramatic language, have feared to do so because that it might actually bring political consequences. Well, we're not a country that does that. We just, it's never, it's never been a thing that happens. No one has actually even really built the infrastructure to it. The progressive uh, NGOs have such good access to media and government that they don't see the need to do it. Mm -hmm. And the conservative groups have just never managed to get it together for a variety of reasons. Now, once upon a time, it, it was not always thus. There was a time that if you offended against a certain kind of Catholic orthodoxy, then you would be punished. The voters would punish you, the party would punish you, society would punish you, you would be, you were in trouble. And unless you are an extremely charismatic, capable, and personally beloved in your constituency kind of person, you were going to be in severe danger of losing your seat. So people didn't. It was, But that the orthodoxies change, we have a new orthodoxy. I think the difference there would be, from the conservative or libertarian point of view, when that used to happen, those people were in the majority anyway. Whereas, were you to try and do it now, you have the much more difficult task of mobilising a minority to have more impact, which is substantially harder, but probably represents the only actual way of countering the NGOs. Yep. But it is what it is. It is indeed what it is. It's a BNA poll. They've all got their own internal biases. They're pretty consistent in those, so they're still useful. I don't really understand parts of this poll. I mean, I don't really understand why Sinn Féin has gone up. I don't... Have they done anything recently? Or is it that they've been there and they haven't been the government? The only thing that Sinn Féin have been in, in the news for recently is Stanley. I would have thought that was the big Sinn Féin story for the last little while. I mean, Michael, I love a, you know, a good game of talking insider baseball. But Stanley... The, the things about Stanley and things about... You know, people were saying that this activist left the party after they put something on social media and Sinn Féin activists, because they were in the same party, turned up their house and suggested this wasn't you know, the appropriate way to go about things. And people were saying, this isn't normal... This is terrible. It's a, it's an example of intimidation. Uh, I think in any well-organized party, if a functioning activist said something publicly, there would be a response from the party. Yes. And if there wasn't, that wouldn't indicate to me that the party was you know very, very accepting of dissent. It would be that the party isn't organized. You don't force them to do anything, but you'd certainly give them a call or call up to the house and go, look, that's not really helpful. Mm -hmm. So this this sort of clutching of the pearls, how could such a terrible thing happen, <laughs> I think yeah. is, one, false, because these people know that this is how this works, and two, the public doesn't care. So who are you trying to win points with here? The media already hate Sinn Féin nearly totally, so you're not swaying them to your side. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the general public, when the strong sense I have is that the general public couldn't give a flying fuck. And the same with Stanley. Stanley comes out and he apologises and he... 
I was surprised he actually apologised about the uh, tweet about the ambush. That was actually somewhat surprising. Um, but again, I don't think the public cares. It's not the sort of thing that gets true to the public consciousness. And even if the public is aware of it, are they really surprised that a Sinn Féin TD would say something like that? I think the problem for, you know, at the level of comprehension, shall we say, for the media or the press about this is, it's not that nobody cares, but it is the case that those people who care are never going to vote for Sinn Féin anyway. They are a null set as far as Sinn Féin potential voters are considered. So they are essentially irrelevant. I mean, I saw, I saw some of the Fine Gael activists and TDs when the story came out about that person calling up to the, the female activists, the female Sinn Féin activists home, saying, you know, this is not a normal party. This is, you know, how awful that there would be such intimidation. I also saw a tweet from Hugh O'Connell. And uh, so we re-record these incredibly early at night. So by the time you hear this, this will be available. And his tweet is saying that in the Sunday Independent, there is a story of a Fine Gael politician calling to a constituent's home at night to confront them over a social media post. Not a party member, at least it doesn't mention if they're a party member, just a constituent. And that's one of the reasons why you don't make stuff like that a big deal, because you'll have done the same thing. It's just a question of who's done it. But also, Gary, if you want to talk about normal, is it normal for a party to behave like this and bullying in a party? What would you think of a party where a prominent young member of the party went to a perfectly respectable political conference with a, with a group of other young Irish politically engaged people from a wide variety of political perspectives and ended up being called out savagely? by senior elected members of his own party. Yeah, having them publicly publicly make statements against him and then having a TD and an MEP discuss the matter publicly. Yeah, yeah. and in language, which was really... That, that could be considered bullying or an attempt by you know a more progressive wing of the party to dispose of someone that they thought was problematic to them. Is that normal? Ah, is that what a normal party behaves like? It seems to me that if that's an, if that's normal, then I don't see that anything Sinn Féin did here was falling outside of the, the norms of political behaviour. No, I mean, you could have, let's say, you had that done by one party in government. Let's say another party in government perhaps tried to take over control of who their TDs were appointing as parliamentary assistants. Yes. In a pretty transparent attempt to actually gain control over access to and the information flow to those TDs. Mm -hmm. uh, would that also be bullying if they started targeting certain parliamentary assistants and saying that they weren't ideologically sound and that the TD should consider sacking them? Well, I, I, I think this uh, could be construed as coming pretty well close to bullying and so that so that we got we've got finnegale and finnefall off the map then <laughs> so i mean the green party is the green party yes they don't bully they just bully us they don't bully each other all of this wasted time on minor basically personal spats that i don't care about and i don't think anyone outside of leinster house and the media cares about and even not all of those and it's just a massive waste of time and in fact, it just kind of makes me less likely to consider those people good 
votable politicians. Because you're sort of you're just wasting time on this. I can see, I can see, if I'm going to be fair, I can see that you might look at that tweet and actually be genuinely disgusted by it. I think it was not, I mean, beyond not good taste. And you might think to yourself, this should be an issue. And I, I might say you might even be right. It should be an issue. But you know what? It's not. At least not for the people that fall into the, the set of Sinn Féin or possible Sinn Féin voters. That is the strong sense that we have of, up to now of those voters, that they don't. They have discounted this. They, it is priced into Sinn Féin. It is ancient history. The Good Friday Agreement is now 20 years old, 1997, 98. I mean, whatever about whether or not it should be considered a problem, it can't be considered a problem in a country which has historically won its freedom from an imperialistic power through a campaign largely of vites, and where the other major parties also base their roots in that struggle. So to then come along and say, that was a terrible thing you said there, I don't think is going to fly very far. And you can say, yes, it's materially different. We won't get into that particular argument because that's a, that's a bog hole that goes down a very, very long way. To be honest, I, I, I would make the point here that I think you can differentiate those points. I think, in general, the standard of education on Irish independence, and then as you move into the Northern Ireland uh, topic, is so per that very few people in the country would actually be able to parse that argument. They would... They'd find it hard to. They would find it difficult to parse, and they would certainly find it even difficult, more difficult to pass. Should it be an exam question? But it is what it is. The that that's the state of the parties. If it was a horse race, you'd say that you have three in the three in the lead, and everybody else is tailed off, and it's all to play for. If Fianna Fáil can go up a couple of points, should Fáil can come down, suddenly Fianna Fáil will start saying, yeah. I would like, if I were to follow, I would still like the other opinion polls to have me closer to 20% than, they, than to 10%, which is currently what they do. But, you know, listen, we're not going to have an election until after Easter anyway. No, things like this are, are um, I, was, I was talking to someone there, um, someone in politics, and they were making the point that the Green Party should be stronger in government, that they were the linchpin holding this thing together. I made the point that the Green Party is polling. At two or three percent, the Green Party is not the linchpin of anything. The Green Party is fucking terrified of death. <laughs> so what is it going to do? Bring down the government in the middle of a pandemic and hope to God it goes well? Yeah. You can be as necessary as possible, but if you can't remove yourself, you're not important. That's the thing. If you, if all you have is the threat that you'll go, at the same time as everybody knowing that that threat is empty then effectively you, ha you have no power. All, the only thing you can bring to the cabinet table is, your, is persuasion. And let's face it, that's not going to get you very far in Irish politics. Oh, so you've got, you've got people who, on the surface, should have quite a deal of influence, but really have one option. And, I mean, there's the old boxing joke about people who can show very, very good hits, but aren't great boxers. They're just, they hit you, they'll level you. That there's only they only have one trick, but by God, it's a good one. Yeah. The party only has one trick, but it can never do it. It's like that old joke about the the impresario who said he used to manage the 
what was probably the greatest act in the history of light of of light entertainment. He said, "What was it? I this guy could used to who could blow his head up, and he did it." He said, "Oh yeah, but that was it. He didn't have much of a career afterwards." And the Greens are a bit like they can blow their heads up, but then what do they do? And we also have to remember, in the same way as Fianna Fáil bear the historical scars, the psychic traumatic scars of the of the crash election, so do the Greens. The Greens were absolutely belly ranked out of politics in that election. Some of the Greens bear those scars, not all of them. Well, Eamon Ryan does. Oh, yes. He remembers. He remembers the war. He remembers Stalingrad. He knows what the cold feels like. And I'm sure that part of them thinks, you know, well, some of them would say, no, no, it's different now. We're more established. We're... Green politics has evolved in Ireland. There is a real, solid, genuine part of the electorate which is just green and they're going to vote for us, whatever. And then there are others going, no, no, the bastards. They're turn on you. They're like, they're like hungry dogs. If you, ha- if you don't feed them, but somebody else feeds them, they'll turn and they'll bite you. And you know what? I think that's probably a more accurate description of the voter. So I think those that are, uh, that are worried and traumatized are constantly, we, how do we manage this? And that's always the problem for smaller party. What happens when you go into government? How do you manage that? How do you succeed? In being in government, satisfying your voters, being both responsible and collegial and working in cabinet government, but at the same time, not just destroying your base and pissing them off so they all go away and vote for Social Democrats or the Labour Party. One thing that is now rapidly becoming a problem for the Greens is the realisation that those things you say when you're in opposition, because you can safely say them, because you'll never implement them, if you then get into government shortly after that, people remember those things. Oh, and so yeah. you might find yourself suddenly saying, for instance, that a particular trade deal is a really great thing and absolutely needs to be implemented because of Brexit. And people go, hold on a second, didn't you spend four years campaigning against this? What is their particular objection to the great and glorious CETA? So CETA, which is a, a free trade deal between EU and Canada. It's the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement. So this thing has, was in negotiation for... God knows how long. And it, eons. It got signed in 2016. Parts of it since then have been sort of provisionally applied, as they say, and, and come into place. But to get the full force of it, it needs to be ratified by every parliament. Now, that's proving to be surprisingly rocky. Yes. And most of it relates to a particular provision in it. So it's being put forward that were we to fully implement CETA, Uh, businesses will be able to force the state away from implementing new laws which would improve environmental standards, labour standards. Uh, It could impact negatively on consumers. That effectively it would be a deliberate undermining of state sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Now, that comes from a particular provision. Now, that provision contains, uh, basically lays out what would happen if there is a dispute between a foreign firm and either a country in the EU or the EU as a whole um, about how the treaty is being applied. They're called investor state dispute settlements. Yes. In relation to CETA, there was a massive pushback against it and they came back and said, okay, now we've got a different thing. 
which is the investment court system, which is basically the same thing with a different name. They are basically saying that that system, the investment court system, would allow companies to undermine national sovereignty and fight back against environmental clauses, that it would effectively put private companies, give them parity with states and the EU as a whole, and that that would then lead to a lessening of standards for everyone. If you, uh, Michael McDowell was in, I think, the Irish Times today, also complaining about it and saying, you know, they're, they're, they're basically they're terrible things and it's uh, deeply controversial. The problem is, is the debate about it is fairly nebulous because these are effectively what these things are is when you sign an international treaty, you will have certain provisions in it and you can insert an investor state dispute settlement system into it. Yes. And basically what it is, is you set up an arbitration system. But in that treaty, you can detail exactly what is covered by that and what the exemptions are and how it can be used. So they are all similar. And there's thousands of these things, by the way, in usage. They're a pretty standard part of international trade agreements. But there is a great deal of difference between them and what they can be applied by. So if you have a treaty that says companies cannot bring cases where the, uh, let's say, something has been changed due to protection of the environment. Right. That would lock that out. That's all you need to do. You need to just define what can and can't be done. Now, CETA does have safety guards in there that basically say you can't do it if it was um, brought in to protect consumers, to protect the common good, to protect the environment. So just on the face of it. I mean, yes, you could technically try and bring something, but it wouldn't go anywhere. They would just knock it right out of the park on that. It is important to note here that indigenous firms can't use this. This would be if a Canadian firm was invest or investor was involved in Ireland and the Irish state did something that disadvantaged them. In the same way, European firms or Irish or I was about to say British, but no longer French or German firms in Canada could use the same thing. You know, I, 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 get, I get the concerns. I'm not 100% convinced that a lot of the rhetoric we're hearing is genuine or sincere concern, but whether or not there's another agenda or, a, or there's another bargaining process which is going on and this is being used. Because, listen, we know from, oh God, the history of the 20th century, but certainly the history of the post-war period, the United States has historically been very, very slow to cede its sovereignty in all sorts of areas of international law. So, for example, when you're talking about international war crimes and international war crimes tribunals, the United States is incredibly slow because they don't want their soldiers to be subject to anybody's tribunal except their own because of somebody else's understanding what constitutes a war crime rather than theirs. Now, NAFTA, as you said, I mean, this is some, these these uh, international investor state dispute settlement things. They're part of thousands of treaties. Now, there's there is what there is. It is part of NAFTA, which is the trade agreement, the North American Free Trade Area, which is between Canada, the United States, and Mexico. And NAFTA must be how old is NAFTA? Is it must twenty years old? Twenty years old. I mean, there is controversy around NAFTA, but not about that provision. Not not about that provision. And it would seem to me that if there was a, a real issue regarding subversion of sovereignty. 
that we would have heard about it in the United States and the United States would have had issues with it. Now, also, Gary, effectively speaking, I'm not quite sure what it can mean within a, within a bilateral trade agreement or a multilateral trade agreement to subvert the sovereignty of the state because ultimately the state will say, well, no, we would, we, we would, we would set the rules. Like, people have pointed out there's been all these disputes in the state states about you know, in, in, in treaty claims since, oh God, the, the I think second Clinton and first Bush presidencies. But my understanding, and my understanding of these things is limited to my capacity. I am not an interactor. That, that as much as anything has been the breakdown after Doha, the Doha round of the, of the WTO thing. I, it's, it's also important to, two things I think are important to point out here. A lot of the cases we've seen are actually European companies bringing them against other places. And the, that is the important, one of the important things here. If ca- Canadian firms can do this to Irish or European countries, we can do it to them. And the second thing I think which is very important, and I've heard this claim a lot, is these, when these things are triggered, they usually go through a process of arbitration. The standard way of doing it is that there are three arbiters. One is picked by the company or the investor, one is picked by the state, and one is jointly decided between them. And in general, you can pick whoever you want. Those people, if they come back and say, actually, there was a breach of the treaty here, they have no power to strike down any law or regulation at all. Absolutely, they do not. What they will do if they find against you, or if they find against the state, is they'll say that, okay, because of this, let's say the state effectively expropriated your investment and therefore they have to pay you the cost of that investment and an additional uh, fee on top of it. They will give you a monetary reward. They will not strike down the law. They they have no power to do that. Well, you could say that they, they may compensate you for any perceived tort tortoise damage you might you have endured but that's that's the height of, we we have heard I, for example trade unions uh have talked about the way that this could impact on workers rights we've had uh environmental groups talking about the fact that this might affect uh, environmental issues that ultimately that these kinds of things are a subversion of parliaments and they're in subversion of the rule of law and this is a way that it this is the final late stage of globalism and global capitalism where corporations which essentially no longer have any national home but have become little have become states of their own can rise above the rule of the regulation of 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 of, of nation states i go back to my previous point if if there was subversion of american law or if we had cases clear breaches of where american environmental concerns were not being addressed or American workers were being disadvantaged. I think we would have heard something about it. There would have been a little bit, you know, it's not that the Americans have no have no media, and it's not that American media doesn't have a capacity to be heard around the world. If there were really serious, egregious examples of the kinds of concerns that we've been hearing about, that, and by the way, I'm, I have no position on this. I, I really don't. I mean, I'm bored to tears by, I mean, why, I, I, as, Anybody who listened to the last two episodes, my excitement at the idea of talking about this treaty has been tremendous. But it, on, just on this specific issue, I, 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 it seems to me this, is, this has been done many, many times before. We haven't seen these 
apocalyptic outcomes. I don't see why. It's Canada also, by the way, you know, Canada. Is Canada really going to bring down European civilization? Well, maybe it will. I don't know. I think there that actually kind of touches on what I think is actually the strongest argument against these agreements, the, the these types of arbitration agreements. They sort of came into vogue, and they're, they're quite old. I think the earliest one I could find was in 1951. I think it was Germany and someone, but I can't remember off the top of my head. They generally came into vogue because if you have two countries and they have different legal systems, and maybe no one is quite sure how independent the legal system is or if it's going to be applied fairly, this kind of moves it outside that. And everyone has input, but you don't have to worry that you're going to be treated unfairly in an unfamiliar legal system. Yeah. And also it de- it depoliticizes it to an extent because you don't have two states backing up their firms, basically screaming at each other. It just gets put away somewhere to, to the side where it'll be debated privately and then you'll come back with a response. But I think actually one of the main arguments against this is not that they're evil or they can overturn law or they can be used as a weapon because all of that just depends on how you word uh, the treaty. And as long as it's worded appropriately and CETA has quite wide-ranging safeguards on this, you don't have to be overly concerned about that. Where I think the, the actual weakness is, is, is this necessary? If you're, if you're dealing with you know, a third world country with a totalitarian government, yeah, you probably want some safeguards in so that you don't have to abide by um, their courts because you can't trust their courts. But when you're dealing with America, Europe, Canada, the courts in general are of a very high standard. So it then becomes a question of, is this necessary at all? Because we can trust those courts to uh, handle the matter fairly. And if it finds that the treaty has been breached in a certain way, well, then they will apply a suitable penalty. And that, I think, is probably the best argument against these sorts of things. Yeah, the argument against the court system, but rather a mediated arbitration system, is simply cost. Cost and time. Because, for example, it doesn't, it, it, it depends on this treaty. I don't know in this treaty. I know in some treaties there will be an explicit statement that you do, that you do not have to exhaust all of the local remedies available to you. Yes, generally. Now, or sometimes you'd be saying you have to go. Th- you have to go through all the exam. No, if you have to go through all the local remedies, and if you if you get into a long and involved legal dispute, well, one of the first things you'll do in a trade dispute, the first thing you'll do is you'll have a dispute over where the where, where what court has jurisdiction, that which will which can take God knows how long, and then you'll 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 establish that, and then you'll have a you'll have a dispute over what language it will be heard in, and then you'll have the court dispute itself, and then depending on where the jurisdiction is, like for example, if it's in the United States or if it's in Ireland or England, there is at least a sense that you have a, a fairly clear idea of how long this process might take and what point it is over. But if you're in the Napoleonic system, like you're in France or certainly I know in, in Italy. There is a sense in which the whole thing is potentially infinite and goes on forever. You set up an arbitration system, arbitration tends to be much cheaper because, I mean, when you're dealing with international law at this level, you're dealing with international lawyers and you're talking about guys at $500, $700 an hour kind of thing and by God, they will rack up the hours. All of this can be can be dealt with in the body of the treaty. You can you can determine which law will be applicable in certain cases, languages, things like that. But yes, it can still be complicated to figure out in particular cases. The cost of it, the, these sorts of arbitrations can actually be immensely costly because you will throw 
about as much legal expertise as this as you can, depending on the nature of the case. So they can actually be, be quite costly. There are also concerns with conflict of interests in that because each side picks one person, you can pick someone who's just hideously biased towards you. But you can also put safeguards into the treaty on that. You don't have to you don't have to allow anything you want. Company or countries are absolutely free to design this into a bespoke system, which is part of the difficulty of talking about it. But even were you to go with that uh, the the tree arbiter system in which you each pick one and you jointly pick one, if you allow them to pick the jointly appointed arbiter to be someone who has a clear conflict of interest in their direction, that's on you, regardless of if you are the state or the company. That that your is your job to negotiate that and to, to fix on somebody that is going to be reasonable. Now, one of the issues there is another issue that you say, but you know you can def- you can define it in such a way, and that you, within your court system, one of the problems it, it, I think potentially, depending on the jurisdiction in which the thing is lodged, is to what extent is it actually possible to delimit rights? Anyway, even if you have an arbitration system, I don't know to what extent it, is it, it will be possible in all jurisdictions to, to actually stop someone saying, well, I still have a right, even the, the arbitration has reached this conclusion, but I still have a right to, to judicial review. I still have the right to go, to, because in some sense, in, or in some way, this process was defective. And because it was defective, then I have the right to a judicial review as under the principles of natural justice. So, interestingly enough, the European Court of Justice did look at effectively that question in 2019. And they said that the, the investment court system is absolutely compatible with the existing EU treaties. But they also said that um, the courts of the EU maintain primacy. So, yeah, you could probably go through arbitration and then try and take it to the courts. Unfortunately, if the treaty says a particular thing and arbitration was correct, the court would probably just say that. Yeah, but it, it will depend on the point of law, because if it's a point of human, say it's a point of human rights law, the court may, deci- may take the decision that there are certain certain types of law would take precedence over other types of law. If there's a conflict that you as a citizen or you as an individual ha- have had your rights in this in this way, in a, in a way which is not compatible with the higher with the higher law of, of the union or whatever. But now listen, we're getting just, this is just going on into snakes and snakes. If you had a situation, let's say, where the state did something and said it was for the, um, they had to do it for human rights. And the arbitration said that in this case, that that was not an effective thing. That was not covered under the treaty. You hadn't, you had written it in such a way that you could bring a case, even if, or an arbitration, uh, even if it was done for particular reasons. The arbitration would find in the other side's favour. If that went to court, the question would not be, was this done in order to protect human rights? It would be, does that international treaty, which regulates the arbitration, say that... You know, arbitration can find in a particular way. The question would less be why you have done this and more be what does the treaty you have signed allow to happen? And international law is in a weird place generally because 
when you sign off on it, you agree to certain conditions, but all parliaments have the right to effectively change their mind at any time. Yeah, but that's but these are that but yes, but what the parliaments don't have the right to is to negotiate uh, negotiate rights which are inalienable to the individual citizen. The parliaments may agree to it, but if the judge, if the court finds that some part of this agreement or some part is actually is is in practice resulting in the alienation of of a, of a citizen's right, that the parliaments have no right to alienate. Well, then it, the, the, the 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 arbitration or the, or the document itself will fail because they don't. They don't have the right to do that. But this is... I mean, I'd st- I would struggle to see a provision in an international trade treaty that could be shown to do that. I suppose mean, it's, it's technically possible if it related well, to... It could be related to... La- it, it could be labour law. Listen, we we know the courts Courts evolve and understanding as... <laughs> you, you know very well, Gary... Courts' understanding of what the nature of what rights can be discovered is an ever-increasing... Well, I mean, I would point out that the idea of a Supreme Court being able to invalidate international treaties and domestic law is not actually accepted in all countries. And even in certain countries where it is accepted, it sort of just came about. Like, in America, the idea that the Supreme Court can invalidate laws based on the ground of constitutionality but in Germany, that's an established principle. Oh, that's true, but it depends on the country. But I think we're, we're kind of going fairly into the, the weeds here. There yeah, was, a, there was yeah, actually an yeah, amusing yeah. case involving this, and um, Philip Morris, that I actually... This is actually talked about quite a lot. It was Philip Morris, and they brought a case against Australia. Because Australia had implemented... Um, packaging. Uh, plain laws, packaging. And yeah. Philip Morris argued that they... I'm trying to remember exactly what they argued. They argued, I believe, that by doing this, Australia had destroyed Philip Morris's ability to use its trademark inside Australia and had effectively destroyed its its usage of that property in the territory. But what Philip Morris did beforehand was they had a company called Philip Morris Limited and they used a um, deal that Australia had with Hong Kong so, so shortly before, maybe in a couple of weeks, before Australia brought in the plain packaging, Philip Morris in Australia was sold to the company in Hong Kong so that when the plain packaging law came in, they could basically try and go this route. So they brought the, uh, an ISDS claim in under um, a, bilateral, a bilateral treaty with Hong Kong, and they got fucking nowhere. It got to arbitration. And the tribunals just went, you clearly only sold the company to the Hong Kong uh, group in order to bring this case. It's, it's ridiculous. And they just threw the entire thing out. And I'm uh, pretty sure it was deeply expensive to Philip Morris. But that's, that's I think, is a support, sort of important point here. Even if you can bring a case, it doesn't mean you win. And because states are involved in picking the arbiters, they're not just rubber stamp boards that are going to say anything a corporation says is fantastic. Listen, at the end of this whole process, I am fairly confident that no state will end up being bereft of anything that that state really cares about. 
I'm not saying the states couldn't lose cases, but if it was something a state really, really cared about, I think you'd find that the state would find a way of asserting its sovereignty. So they also brought a similar case, actually, against Uruguay. And this illustrates a slightly different aspect of it. Uruguay were arguing that Philip Morris should increase the size of health warnings on um, cigarette packages. And Philip Morris brought the case and said that um, this violated some of the investment protocols that um, Uruguay had with Switzerland. I have no idea if they also sold one of their other groups to Switzerland in order to bring this claim, but they brought the claim under a Switzerland-Uruguay bilateral trade agreement. Yes. And the tribunal, the, the arbitrarial tribunal, which again, they appointed one member of and helped appoint one of the others, I believe it was a three-person tribunal, said that Uruguay has a genuine interest in protecting public health. And therefore, it's not a breach of the treaty. And that, that I think, illustrates you just write the treaty correctly. Now, 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 now Gary, no, hold on, Gary. You said something there, and you know perfectly well that you've glossed over it in, in a glib and suave manner. Write it you correctly. Said, you said, you just have to write the treaty correctly. That's all. So you're, first of all, saying that these people, everybody will know what the correct right correct treaty is and they will have the capacity to anticipate and understand what the correct treaty is and then to write it and to frame it correctly uh, you, uh, you you display a confidence in these people <laughs> Gary which I find touching well in relation to CETA there are safeguards in there you don't need to give exact you know provisions and requirement as to exactly what will fall into anything no I, I don't doubt that Gary I, I'm sure you do all, all the IS all the ISDSs here are are just the bog standard mechanisms that exist in thousands of other treaties to organise how you arbitrate these cases. I'm just saying the concerns are the concerns that they are, and you could, as we I've been trying to manufacture rhetorical examples. I I, I suppose in a sense thought experiments if you like more than anything like philosophical thought experiments to say well this could happen but they won't happen because that's not what happens these are just these are just trade disputes they will be resolved like trade disputes are and everything will be grand there have been decades of these things in service and we haven't seen it hasn't happened and if it if it had happened it would have happened in the states now i i i will i will make this point i can absolutely understand why people these things as i said are they're not complicated but they're not standardized there is a, a, an international group that deals with a lot of this but countries are, are free to write what they want into these things so you can usually find examples that are a bit odd or cases being brought and you just don't mention what the outcome was but most of those things are avoidable but it, it is complicated to figure out exactly what is the case in any specific uh treaty and then you have, like, the Irish Examiner's article by Aoife Moore, Moore, even. And it says, if ratified, CETA would allow corporations to sue the Irish state through an investor court system over regulatory decisions that negatively impact their profits, which, would have negative, or which could have negative consequences for climate legislation. Now... To say they can Please sue them God. over regulatory decisions that negatively impact their profits is simply incorrect. That is <laughs> not what happens here. They may bring them to arbitration over something that does hurt their profits, but simply 
putting something in place that causes a reduction in the profits of a company from Canada is not going to be sufficient grounds. They would have to. There would also have to be a breach of the agreed of protocols the of the treaty. And then when it says, which could have negative consequences for climate legislation, that, and I think that's quite carefully constructed, is not saying that they can overturn the laws. But if you, I think if you were a layman and you were reading that, you'd think that's what it's saying. And you think it was a jolly good idea. And then, of course, absolutely, the idea a corporation can go to a, a private three-man tribunal and Irish laws will be overturned is outrageous. But that's not what's happening. Well, it depends on the law. I mean, if it's Irish, if it's Irish, it's fit, Irish government or Fine Gael, for example, green policy on the environment, on the environment, I think it might be a very good thing indeed. Have you seen, by the way, on something completely unconnected, that Joe Biden has decided that he's going to recommit to the United States to a proper his proper role in the environment and to join back up with the Paris Accords, ignoring blithely and happily the fact that have, that when Trump having abandoned the Paris Accords, the United States not only met, but actually super surpassed the uh, targets that it had been set under the, pa- the Paris Accord. Which is a thing not many of the countries under the Paris Accord can uh, can say. Indeed, it can, they cannot. You have, you have certain things being said about these things, which, again, the information is out there, but they're complicated in order to determine exactly what's happening with CETA. I mean, the CETA treaty itself, the appendices of CETA are hundreds of pages. I have not read the entire thing. I've read more of it than I probably should have. These things are huge. They're they're gone. But the fact is, I mean, not to be justatably obvious or to be dismissive of it, this is an agreement between Europe and Canada. Now, when it was NAFTA, and there was a great debate about NAFTA, you were talking about three countries where there was a very significant asymmetry economically between two of the countries and the third country. Obviously, the state of development of the economy in Mexico is very different to that of the United States and Canada. Rates of pay, reg- you know, safety standards, regulation, all of these things, you might have... And there was a concern that there would be, at the time, the quote was a great sucking sound as all the jobs left uh, Canada, the United States, and all went to Mexico. That might, on the face of it, be a a legitimate concern. But whatever. This is Canada, the United States, and and the the European Union. Uh, I I really don't see, on the face of it, where the, 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 the potentially catastrophic threat is going to come from. I mean, God, I mean, we might see more of Pierre Trudeau, and I know that would be painful for all of us, but other than that, you know, poutine, will we all have to eat poutine once a year? That's chips with gravy on it, for those who haven't seen it, and if you haven't, you know, you haven't, you haven't missed much. So, yeah, I, I think the, the important thing is they can't overturn laws. There are existing provisions in CETA that would cover most of the concerns that are being put forward. And that's not really being reflected in how certain political parties and certain media are talking about this. That's not to say, by the way, that I think this provision in CETA is either necessary or good. That's not what I'm saying. There are arguments against it. What I'm saying is that what most of the conversation around this and the positioning of that particular thing is largely horseshit. Yes. 
And then, I mean, the, the Irish examiner is claiming that if this comes into force, it would have a, um, you know, people are, well, you never say it's your thought. You always say many are concerned <laughs> yeah. about the chilling effect on governments who wouldn't even try to take the actions we need for fear of being sued. Governments get sued by the hour. The thought that that would stop them. Whereas, and, and again, you just write it so you can't be sued for certain you, things. You, you're talking about, again, you're talking about, the big one is the environmental concerns. Now, usually, one of the things, if a Canadian, a Canadian company is going to most likely have to demonstrate that there's a, that there is a, uh, a lack of parity or a lack uh, between regulation from one place to the, to one jurisdiction to the other, which is placing it at a, at a disadvantage. I can't see that the Canadian, I really can't see that the Canadian environmental regulation is going to be that much more attractive to a Canadian company than anything that's going to be in Europe. If we're going to be looking at parity, parity of experience uh, for outcome. I mean, they're, they're, they're quite good. I mean, one thing that's happened with CETA is CETA now refers specifically to the Paris Accords as an exclusion where a company cannot bring you to arbitration or would not win that arbitration if something is done in order to achieve the Paris Accord targets. So to then kind of go, it could impact of environmental standards without actually telling people that. Only if we decided to commit to environmental standards which were more rigorous or severe than those which we committed to in the Paris Accords, which does not seem likely. But even that wouldn't be enough. We'd have to do so in a way which explicitly broke a treaty provision. And disadvantaged a specific company. Yeah, as I said, there are arguments against it. The Greens are now running into the problem that they opposed this thing for years. Now they're in government. And I would imagine someone sat down with some economic projections of, this is Ireland's official unemployment rate. This is the actual unemployment rate that we figure. Yes. This is what we think it'll be after Brexit. We would really like you to pass this trade deal on the basis of, you know, not driving the country into crippling poverty. More than we need to. Already. Also, as we said, the Greens have absolutely no power or leverage because if they leave, they'll primarily hurt themselves. And the next government will probably pass CETA anyway. So is this really what you want to bring it down over? Is this the hill you want to die on? I will say this. The government scheduled 55 minutes of debate for this thing. And I can understand on one hand why you do that, because this is really just an excuse for opposition to get up and grandstand and say absolute nonsense. On the other hand, there are legitimate points about this treaty that should be discussed, including this provision, just in a way that is accurate. And there are other uh, issues across Europe with it, so there's no immediate rush on this. But we're st- we've seen this with the government. They schedule things in such a way that there will be no debate. Although, having said that, Sinn Féin did the same thing with Stanley's apology, where they scheduled it so there could be no questions afterwards. I agree with all of that. I would, however, suggest that while it would be a very good thing for the doll to have the a, a, a long and detailed discussion about it, that to the extent that we can rely on the goodwill and the good nature of our listeners, that the extent to which we've discussed it may be sufficient. Michael McDowell has gone really soft. Oh, he's turning into a liberal. I'm just, I'm just reading his his thing on the uh, rereading his thing on this deal and. Why should multinational corporations enjoy parity with sovereign states 
especially when they demand the right to exist offshore for taxation purposes. They don't have parity with states. Silly Billy. Is it essential for transatlantic trade and investment that states such as Ireland should surrender their sovereignty to the jurisdiction of an ICS system? Again, that's not what's happening. Having said that, as I said, there are definitely arguments against its inclusion in this case, and it may in fact be entirely surplus to requirements, because concern about the independence of the judiciary is not stopping investment in either Ireland or Canada. Anyway, I think that is uh, that is us for today. I think we'll be back on Wednesday, Michael. Hopefully. Um, if we can organise it, maybe with something fun and festive, but if not, just the usual. Oh, Wednesday is, uh, is Wednesday Christmas Eve? Uh, it's uh, Christmas Eve Eve. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So we will be back then with another... Uh, yeah, another... Uh, fevered imagining of... Yeah, it'll, 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 it'll be it'll be Marley's ghost all over again. Until then, mind yourselves and stay safe. You'll never give birth to a dancing star with that attitude, Michael. I hope not. That sounds like a terrible case of indigestion. All the best. <laughs>